Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and this is TruthQuest Podcast, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. Instead of approaching the Bible, trying to get backing for what we already believe or what we've already been taught. doesn't mean that what we've been taught is wrong. It just means that we want to know what the truth is, the truth of the Word of God, and how to rightly divide God's Word. The Bible says that God's word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to get down to the between the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It works in the hearts of those who believe and that we are thoroughly equipped by God's word and it's totally inspired by him and that God has preserved his word from generation to generation. If you have a question, then write the word question before it and then read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense so that when I bring it in, I'll be able to answer um, according to what the scriptures say. It's our desire again to look at the word of God. And uh, so we have a uh, first question ready to go. And um, this question comes from a previous Q&A. And the question is, what is the right way to be baptized? Uh, and uh, this question was specifically about the modes of baptism. So baptism is something that every Christian is supposed to do. And we know from Romans chapter 6 that it tells us that as many are, as are baptized by him are baptized into his death. So like communion, where you commune with Christ at the Lord's Supper so that you partake in his death, uh, his resurrection, his suffering upon the cross, and it is applied to you. So when you go under the water, you are laying that old life down. And when you rise up, you're rising up in the newness of life that God has given you. A lot of denominations baptize differently. There are those denominations that pour. There are some denominations that sprinkle. There are uh, uh, others that dunk. And during the biblical times, they did both for different reasons. Sometimes they sprinkled and sometimes they immersed. And the word baptism literally means to immerse. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. The Bible says there was much water there. So he went there to baptize in a certain particular place. And so biblically, it seems that they were going under the water as a symbol of the ground, burying that old man and coming out of the water in the newness of life. Now, because that's the biblical way and the preferred way I believe to be baptized is by immersion, doesn't mean it has anything to do with salvation. Or that if you go to a church that, that brings you to the front and pours water over your head to baptize you, or if you're sprinkled, that you're gonna get up to the gate in heaven and God's gonna go, uh, mm, no, I'm not gonna let you in. Um, you got you you were poured and you weren't you weren't dunked or you were sprinkled and you weren't dunked. Uh, baptism is not the mode of salvation. I know there are people that teach that baptismal regeneration, but the Bible says we're saved by faith, not by works, but we're saved by faith through the grace of God, lest anyone should be able to boast. So there's nothing that you can do to be saved. However, I think we want to do things as biblical as we can. And the biblical way for us to be baptized uh, after we've been born again is to be immersed. When I was saved, I was saved in the United Methodist Church. I had been baptized as an infant in that church. And then when I met the Lord, me and a few other friends had read that they believed and were baptized. 
And so we went to our pastor and said, who, who was a Methodist pastor, uh, we really want to be baptized after we believed. And he said, you don't need to. You've been baptized already. And we kind of pushed against that and said, we really want to get baptized after we believe. And to his credit, he said, okay. And he went down to a, we went down to a friend of his church, a Baptist church that had baptismal. And we were baptized by a Methodist pastor in a Baptist church. And we went under the water. This was just something we felt was necessary for us to be able to do. And let me say, I think it's really important that you are baptized. You've, there are a lot of Christians, when we do baptisms and I'll ask people, how long has it been? Uh, how long have you been a Christian? And they'll say 20 years. And I'm like, and you're just now being baptized. So it's a good thing that they are, but nevertheless, you should take action to be able to be baptized before that. I know at our church, we do baptisms every other month at each location. So we've got two campuses and we do uh, baptisms after services and you can sign up for it um, by filling out uh, a new believers card or by filling out a connection card, um, texting Calvary Connect to 94,000 or ready for Jesus to 94,000. That's our new believers card. And you can sign up for that. You could also call the church office and they could sign you up for the baptism there. But find a good, solid Bible-believing church, a Calvary Chapel in your area uh, would be able to baptize you. A lot of Southern, a Southern Baptist Church, um, Southern Baptist Convention Church would be able to baptize you as well. Um, and you should be at the church you're at. Have one of your pastors at your church baptize you. And um, the question as well, what's the right way to baptize has a lot of different aspects to it. Do you, do you have to have a pastor baptize you? There are those that believe that you have to have a pastor who's been baptized by a pastor who's been baptized by a pastor that was eventually baptized by one of the apostles. Nothing biblical said about that. The, if that was true and that had to happen, the Bible would have explained it. Instead, the Bible just tells us to be baptized. And I do believe that any genuine believer can baptize someone else. So that is a question that was left at a previous Q&A. Thank you very much for that question. I hope I covered all of the aspects of what they were thinking. I know when I was writing this question in, I reduced it down. I took a lot of the nuances out of it and, um, and reduced it down. Hey, if you're um, joining us for our Q&A on YouTube or on Facebook, take time to say hi. Just uh, let us know you're watching. Uh, we'd love to uh, take a question from you if you have any questions on what those could be. I also want to say hello to Daniel. Daniel's our moderator and uh, uh, really appreciate you, uh, Daniel, being here at these uh, Q&As. So if you have a question, just go ahead and write the word question down and then write out your question and uh, we'll take time to make sure that we get to it. All right, uh, I have another question here prepared from a previous Q&A, so I'm gonna go ahead and look at that. So this says, are there sacrifices during the millennial kingdom? Um, there was a lot of questions all in one question about the millennial kingdom. And so I broke that down into several different ones. So the millennium is the time of Christ's reign. And there are people that, there are non-millennialists that believe that it is um, out an allegory or a metaphor and there is no millennium. Uh, there are post-millennial that believe that we as Christians 
are making the world better and better and better and we're going to Christianize the world and then when Jesus returns, we're going to hand him a Christianized world and he's going to rule and reign. Um, and those believe that we're in the millennium right now, at least a lot of those do, kind of kingdom building is, um, is the kind of verbiage that they would use and the kind of thing uh, that they would say. And then there's premillennial. And, and someone who is premillennial generally believes that the thousand years is literal and that Christ is going to return before the millennium period. There will be a tribulation period prior to the millennium, just the seven years right before it, when God judges this earth and then premillennial um, can be broken up into several different beliefs about the rapture of the church, that there is a pre-trib rapture before the tribulation of the church, which is what I believe. Then there is a mid-trib rapture. Some have a pre-wrath rapture, which is about two-thirds of the way through-ish, the tribulation period. And then after the tribulation period, uh, you have post-tribulations. Uh, they are all going to believe the same thing, which is why when people get so upset about the tribulation, the time you believe about the tribulation, it always confuses me because the only thing that we believe different is when the tribulation, when the, when the rapture happens compared to the tribulation. Everything else we believe the same. And so a few years later, the same event, but a few years later, and we're calling names, I always think that's a mistake. Uh, so the Millennium Kingdom starts when Jesus comes back again and begins to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He comes back to the Mount of Olives. He begins to rule and reign from Jerusalem. It was the place that God had chosen to put his name. And the question here is, are there sacrifices during the millennium period? And the answer to that is yes. There's a passage that talks about sacrifices being made, but the sacrifices are not for your sin. You aren't bringing a sacrifice, and by the way, um, well, well, we'll talk about that at another point, who is, um, who is occupying the tribulation period. But Israel has been restored to God and they are now living in Israel and in Jerusalem and Jesus is ruling and reigning and there's a temple that is there and they are giving sacrifices and I believe they are in memorial to what Jesus did on the cross for this thousand year period alone. It doesn't mean that we're going to be having that we're going to be facing different kind uh, that we're going to have sacrifices uh, throughout eternity just during that millennium period. And um, I realize that it can be a little bit um, like just cause a little bit of a question because sacrifices are done today. Jesus died for us. He died once for all. So we don't have to give sacrifices for our sins, but neither do you in the millennium period and it's the nation of Israel. And so it's a reminder of what God was doing for them and what the Messiah did upon the cross for them. It's a memorial uh, to the work of Jesus for the nation of Israel during the millennial period, period giving these sacrifices um, that are in the temple. I understand it can be a little bit confusing, uh, but once you go ahead and look up the scriptures on it, you'll see that it's pretty clear um, that these things are here. So let me make sure I get all of the questions here that we have coming in. Uh, we have a question from Kimberly. Uh, let me go ahead and bring that in here. Kimberly says, um, at the end of Philippians 2.2, it says, um, intent on one purpose. Is that referring to the Great Commission? 
All right, Kimberly, thank you for your question. Let's go ahead and pull it up here. Philippians 2. Uh, and um, this is a great section of scripture talking about humility, not doing anything out of selfish ambition, that Jesus humbled himself and were to walk in humility. Uh, we are teaching the book of Philippians right now on Wednesday night. We are near the end of chapter one. It's an, it's an in-depth study on Philippians and um, been very good. And I really look forward to getting to this section of scripture, really gonna slow down and take our time as we get to it. So Philippians 2.2, 2. so I'm gonna start in verse one. Let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. And um, so on the top of, this is the New King James Bible, it says unity through humility. And then it says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the spirit, and any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. All right, so the question then, let me just go ahead and go on back here. I think, uh, do I have it here or do I have it on? Um, yeah, there you are, Kimberly. Um, so the question is, at the end of Philippians 2.2, it says intent on one purpose. And so, okay. <laughs> excuse me, uh, that sneeze came on pretty fast. Uh, so, um, at the end, it says here, intent on one purpose, and in the New King James, it says being uh, of one accord and of one mind. And uh, so the question is, what is what is that? And is it specifically uh, referring to the Great Commission? Um, I don't know, and, and in fact, I wanted to go ahead and quickly read verse three as well, just to make sure that it doesn't give us any more information. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than yourself. All right, so uh, Kimberly, I don't know that it's talking about the Great Commission. I believe that God wants us to be in unity. And that doesn't mean that we have to believe everything the same way. We could look at a couple of passages or a topic and we could say, I believe that it says this, or I believe that it says that. And I love that verbiage uh, because we're walking in humility when we do it. Instead of saying, this is what it says and I'm right. You're saying, I believe this is what it says. And because of this, this, and this, this is what I believe. You're making that statement, but there's some humility that is there. Anybody can be in unity when they agree on everything. But when we have differences, but we can be of the same mind when it comes to Christ, be of the same mind when it comes to the work of the gospel, the Great Commission, be of the same mind um, when it comes to uh, eternity and living for Christ and supporting one another, not focusing in on the differences, which the Bible says are necessary, but focusing in on what we have in common. And I do believe that we really wanna be in one accord. We wanna be in one accord as we worship. We want to be in one accord as we study the scriptures. We don't want to cause division or contentions in the body of Christ. And I think that that's what he's talking about here in the second verse when he says being of one, being in one accord and one mind. That we would focus on the things that we have in common rather than the things that we have that are different. And that we would encourage one another. And knowing that you might believe something different than I believe and that's okay. We can take a look at what the Bible has to say. There are differences among us so that we can know what the truth is, but there really needs to be the unity of Christ. 
know, um, knowing that there are things that are not major. You want to major on the majors and not major on the minors. And a lot of people major on the minors and that causes division in the body of Christ. And what God wants for us is this incredible unity. Unity that comes from the love of Jesus, from the love of Christ in each one of our lives. And intent on one purpose, I don't know what translation that is, but I like it because it's talk, it talks about us focusing in and being intent on one purpose, making sure that we know what it is that God has called us to. And I think that a major would be the Great Commission. A major would be the way that people come to Jesus. Um, so yeah, I do think that this is one of the areas that we are to have one mind about. Um, I don't know that it's referring to the Great Commission though, just kind of referring to all of the major things in general and that rather than us focusing in on differences that we may have, we're supposed to focus in on the unity and then we can have that unity in Christ. And there's uh, a lot of verses that tell us that we're supposed to be in one accord. So thank you very much, Kimberly, for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, all right, and so we have a question here that Daniel has put in um, about the Queen of Heaven. So let's see what this is. Question, what are your thoughts on the Queen of Heaven and the visions people are having? And is this part of the, the whore that rides the beast in Revelation? Thank you, Daniel, I appreciate that. And so I'm not aware of the visions that people are having regarding the queen of heaven. So I would, I would like to be able, um, I would like to be able to, to, to look that up. And that's one of the things that I will do. Um, so in the old Testament, there was false worship to the queen of heaven. And, um, the, and, and God forbade it that you would kind of have this worship and judged Israel when they worshiped the queen of heaven. Uh, Catholicism today will, I believe the Catholicism today will refer to Mary as the queen of heaven when she's not the queen of heaven. There's never anything that the Bible ever says about her being the queen of heaven. Remember that Catholics have a different set of authorities than Protestants do. We believe in the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, only the Bible. And so we're only going to believe things that are in the Bible. They have extra books in their Bible called the Apocrypha. Apocrypha means hidden. And um, if you read those books, there's a lot of strange things that happen in them and they get some of what they believe about purgatory and other things from them. They get most of what they believe from tradition. And so if they're going to use tradition of the popes or the saints or Christians, and they're going to put that alongside of scripture, then we're going to have a lot of disagreements with them. And I, and, and the interesting thing is, is that Catholics believe the same exact thing that we believe about Jesus, about the Trinity, the Godhead, about his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And a lot of Catholics do not agree with the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of Roman Catholics don't agree with the Roman Catholic Church and don't follow a lot of things that they do. So when we start talking about praying to saints, not being biblical, asking Mary to pray for them, not being biblical, other things that are not biblical, 
Um, there are some who don't believe it. There are others that are too attached to it not being something that is biblical. Um, I don't believe that the whore on the beast is the Catholic Church. And there's been this connection and trying to make a connection between the two um, forever. And I don't believe that's the case, Daniel. So um, I want to take a look uh, and uh, do a little research on the vision of people are having of the Queen of Heaven. All right. So thank you very much, Daniel. I appreciate that. And we have another question here from JG. So JG says, question, what early church writers are legit and should be read by us evangelical Protestant Christians, Tertullian, Justin, Martyr, etc.? Uh, I think it's good for Christians to do a early church father study. Uh, I think that there's a lot of good authors that are out there and you can do a little bit of research um, to see. Uh, I'm trying to remember, there's a couple of books. I mean, most of them are really intense and scholarly, right? And you're going to have to really dig into it. But there's a couple of ones that are really good at summing up a lot of what was being taught and what was being said. Remember, there were early church fathers that were all over the place in Alexandria, Egypt, um, up in what is Turkey today, um, in Israel, in, in, in Rome. There are a lot of early church fathers that were in a lot of different places and um, uh, coming out of the, the seven churches from the, the book of Revelation. There's several church fathers that come out of there. And um, so it's good to be able to compare what they believed and what they taught and how that changed over time. Uh, I do believe that we had a bit more of an understanding uh, now as to what the Bible is teaching and how they interpreted it and how they were working through things. So, um, yeah, I don't know that I would suggest reading any one particular church father. I know Augustine has a lot of stuff on um, that were early church doctrines. And a lot of what the church believes came out of his writings. And um, I think you're going to find, JG, that you would agree with some of it and that you would disagree with some of it. But I think it's a good godly endeavor to say, I want to go back and I just want to start doing some research on the and get familiar with the early church fathers, what they taught and what they believed. Sometimes I hear people say, they'll do this in regard to the rapture. They'll say, the early church fathers never taught a rapture. Well, you are now summing up hundreds of years, like a thousand years, maybe even over a thousand years, and you're summing that up in one statement and hundreds of church fathers as if they all believed the same thing and if it was as if it was never taught. When you go back in, you begin to dive in to see, did anybody teach that you were going to be rescued before the tribulation and you find that the answer is yes. There were many church fathers who taught it. Uh, well, okay, let me, let me take the word many away. There were some church fathers that taught it. Now, remember, we've lost a lot of the writings of the church fathers, so there's certain things that we don't know. We also know that they taught that Jesus could return at any moment. And if they believed that Jesus could return at any moment, then they believed in the pre-tribulation rapture. They believed the rapture was going to happen beforehand. I just don't like when someone paints with a broad brush 
as if their as if their position holds the position of the entirety of the church fathers because this topic is huge it's absolutely enormous and that's why it would be good for you jg start getting familiar with them um and maybe pick up a, a very readable book on tertullian or justin martyr or augustine um origin clement jerome a few of the other church early church fathers just and and look at what they taught i know i have I'm gonna to have to look in my library. I know I've got a book on the early church fathers that I read that got me familiar with what, what each one were teaching compared to the other one. There's some really good books out there that help us to really grab a hold of what they're teaching. But I do believe, I mean, the more you can read about this stuff, JG, the better. I believe that. I believe you can read the Apocrypha, which we don't take as scripture, but we know that they're ancient writings. And I think that there's some like reading a book from a Christian today that you might not agree with 100% of what they say, you can read the Apocrypha in the same way. I think reading the book of Enoch can be positive and you can learn some things uh, from that as well. And the more we do that, the more we're going to be able to see some of the roots where the Bible came from and maybe help to give us a little bit better perspective on interpreting certain things that we find uh, within the pages of Scripture. All right. Thank you, JG. I appreciate uh, your question. It's a good one. Uh, we have another question here from, uh, is it Dree? I think. Uh, so Dree comes to us from Facebook. And so Dree says, I'm new. I've been a Christian for about eight years now, and I'm having trouble lacking faith caused by guilt. What is the right way to repent? Thank you, Dree. I, I appreciate that very much. Um, so, I've uh, been a Christian for eight years, lacking faith. Let me, let me deal with each one of these one at a time. I'm going to deal with the lacking faith first of all. So, I think sometimes we all lack faith. I, there, there may be some who never struggle with it. I struggled with it in the past in my, in my Christian walk and had to really come to, especially when it came to some apparent contradictions in the Bible. I really struggled with them because my, the first answers that I got from people were glib and quick and really were not good. They just tried to cover it up rather than diving into it. I've since learned that there's a lot of answers to these discrepancies, but it caused me to really struggle in my faith. Uh, Jesus was in, I think, Capernaum and a man came to him and said, can you heal my child? You know, if possible, heal my daughter. And Jesus said, Everything's possible if you believe. And the man said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus healed that man's child. So he confessed that he had unbelief, but that he still believed. So belief to some degree is a choice. You make a choice. I, I'm going to believe. I believe, I think Billy Graham had the same kind of an issue. It's been a long time since I've studied uh, his coming to the point of saying, I'm going to put aside my doubts and I'm going to trust the word of God. I know he had doubts and he put it aside and he put a, took the Bible out and said, I'm going to believe your word and I'm going to live it as much as I can. It's cut the same kind of a statement, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so you don't have to have complete 100% confidence in order to make a commitment to be able to live for God and believe for him. So these, this lacking faith caused by guilt. 
And so guilt is, guilt can be devastating um, for, 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 whatever, for whatever it is that, we, that we've done, but know that God can forgive 100% of the things that you confess. So you, you make them right. And if you are a genuine believer, Dree, then you don't want to sin. You don't want to do the things Jesus doesn't want you to do. The Bible said, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John says, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. It means that that doesn't mean you mean to keep them all the time because in the same book, it says, if anybody says they don't have sin, then they're a liar. So we know that we struggle with sin, that we have to have our feet washed as it were, and that we got to go back to Jesus from time to time and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. And it is amazing that God will forgive you of any sin and, and he'll put you back on the right path. There has to be that heart of repentance, which is part of what you're asking here now. What is the right way to repent? It means to pivot. It means that you're saying, I don't want to live this way. And, you know, Lord, I'm sorry that I've done this. I'm sorry that I might be prone to this. Help me that I'm not doing this. It's unconfessed, unrepented sin that is the problem in a Christian's life. So when a, when a Christian goes, you know what, I'm a believer, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I have this sin in my life and I'm gonna go ahead and continue to sin. You know, I've got my girlfriend, I'm gonna continue to sleep with my girlfriend, I'm not worried about it. That's not repenting. And it's not true confession. And so God's not faithful to forgive that sin. You've got sin harbored in your life now that you need to repent from. So that person instead would say, he might be struggling. They may have fallen into sexual sin. And so he says to God, I'm sorry. Sorry for what I did. I want to do that. I need help. I need your help and will you forgive me? And he might really be ashamed that he did that. He might be full of guilt that he did that. But if he's genuine and he's asking God to forgiveness, God will forgive him. And he'll really want to do what God wants him to do. Will it mean that they'll never have another struggle or stumble? I don't know, maybe. God knows whether or not someone's heart is really genuine. God knows what people go through and he is able to look at a genuine heart. So Drew, you just wanna be really genuine in your commitment to Christ. You wanna be, you wanna make sure that you're following him sincerely and that you're saying, that you come to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And if you don't have that, if by chance you don't have that, I'm sorry, you kind of want to keep going, then ask God to give it to you. Lord, help me. Show me how these things are wrong. Show me why I shouldn't be involved in them. Turn my heart, do a work inside of me. Search me, try me, know me, and lead me in the way of righteousness. And all of those things can help us tremendously to make sure that we are truly repentant from our sins. Now, no one's going to be done with sin until we're out of this body because we have a sin nature. And we know that the Bible says that our spirit struggles against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so we don't do the things that we want. There it is. And so hopefully that's getting better over time in what we would call sanctification. And hopefully you're able to really turn from that and repent and call out upon his name and find forgiveness in, your, um, in that sin. But I don't think that you can, can plan on doing it again and not feel bad about it, not bring a broken and contrite heart and say, God, forgive me and have God forgive you. 
I think that you're broken by it and you're driven by it and you ask for help and you know you need to change. You may know that you still have a desire or a drive for that, that sin, but you want to bring it to him and ask him for help. Bible says in um, that no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. So he's got an exit plan with every temptation that he gives you and that helps out a lot. Don't let your guilt keep you from coming to Christ and, and asking for forgiveness. And if you have harbored sin in your life, ask God to help you cut those ropes loose and get rid of it. Make things 100% right with Christ and then move forward. Um, I love what Charles Swindoll says when he talks about keeping a short account, making sure that you don't go too long after you sin before you make things right. And so Lord, help us to have the right heart and the right mind as we are, as we struggle with, um, with different kinds of things. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I really do appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from uh, Light Skin Patriot. All right, Light Skin Patriot. Um, with everything going on in the world right now, do you think we see Christ return in the in our lifetime? It feels like everything is pretty much primed and ready for his return. So thank you. Um, yeah, I think we are really close to the end. And I do believe that there are some things happening right now, specifically worldwide when it comes to the nation of Israel. There's there The Bible predicts uh, that in the end, the last days, there will be a worldwide hatred for Israel and for Jews. Anti-Semitism would be an, a, a worldwide stage or a worldwide level. And that is coming to pass today. The world hates Israel and is hating Jews. A lot of Jews hate Israel today. And a lot of people are, are just hating and that's only going to grow. Also, in 1967, Jerusalem became part of, uh, of the nation of Israel again. And Jesus had predicted that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles after the destruction in 70 AD, which he predicted, and until the time the Gentiles was fulfilled. Israel today is under Israeli control. They are gaining more and more control of East Jerusalem, and of the Temple Mount, even as we are talking. And I think those are signs that we are living in the last days. I think all the technology that needs to be done in order for all of the passages in the Bible that predicted that there would be some technology, seeing one event from around the world, those kind of things are all in place. And um, I do believe that we are very close to those last days and, 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 and living in them. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, what was the light that God created on the first day and the light in the new heavens and the new and earth before the sun and the moon were created? Is it literally or um, allegory? Jesus is the light. Yeah, thank you, uh, Jari. Uh, yeah, so light's created before light bearers are created. So light is something that is different. Well, light is something that's created by the sun and created, you know, off the reflection of the sun and the moon, but it was created before the light bearers were created. And 
The Bible says that in the city of God, there will be no sun or moon because he will be their light. So he's so glorious that God will be our light that is there. Uh, so I'm not sure what the light was on the first day other than maybe other than maybe light and how that light would be different from God's glory before the moon and the stars were done. Um, I don't believe it's an allegory. I think we just don't understand it. I think we go back and look at it and go, well, how can you have light without a flashlight? You know, God, because God created it. And then God created the light bearers that were there. All right. So thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate that. Hopefully that answers your question. Um, so we have a question here from Doug and Doug wrote this question as well. Uh, I believe it was you, Doug, that wrote this question as well in um, our comment section and I answered it there. So he says, the other day you added and be baptized, Acts 16.31. Let's go ahead and take uh, a, ch a chance to look up what's, what's said there so that we can get it right this time. Acts 16.31. All right. Here we go. Let me go ahead and get this up on the screen for you and we'll look at what's said and we'll talk about what I said. All right, thank you, Doug. Um, so what it says in Acts 16.31 is, so they said, this is to the Philippian jailer who asked to be saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour and that night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his household were baptized. All right. So that's the passage. Let's go back to the question. I think it's here by Doug. The other day you added and be baptized Acts uh, 10 31. Um, and they are baptized in 33. So what I added was when, okay, so let me go and look at your, the rest of your question. Uh, when we called on Jesus' name, he fully immersed us in the Holy Spirit according to John the Baptist. Truly, I baptized with water, but once coming after me, he's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, um, so yes, when I was quoting this passage the other day, uh, I was talking about, I think I was talking about the teaching that if you're saved, your family is saved with you. And there's a place where it says, believe and be baptized and you will be saved. And I think I, you know, just mixed up my quotes from this passage, which talks about you and your family being saved. And the other passage that talks about believing and be baptized in order to be saved. And um, I'll take a moment here, Doug, to look up that passage that actually says that. I'm not quite sure what happened here. Hopefully it didn't go out on you. I had my, my screen go out as I brought my computer a little bit closer. Um, but I would like to um, go ahead and, and, and just look that up really quick here in just a moment. Um, so that's what I did. I just made a mistake. And I was quoting one passage and I took a quote from another passage and brought them together. Uh, and then you um, bring up the point, Doug, here, and you didn't do this on your comment, um, that 
uh, when, why when we called on Jesus' name, we were fully immersed by the Holy Spirit, according to John the Baptist. So I'm not sure what you're saying, Doug. Are you saying that we are not to be baptized in water, that because we are baptized into the family of God, which is a thing, okay? So the Bible says that we were baptized into Christ and Jesus does baptize us with, with the Holy Spirit. And I think that there's no one who is baptized uh, that is a Christian without the Holy Spirit inside of them. Are you then saying, Doug, that we are not supposed to be baptized by water? Uh, because we have the Ethiopian eunuch who was talking to um, Philip. And he says, there's water. What stops me from being baptized now? And Philip goes down to baptize him and comes up out of the water and is caught up by the Lord, right? In the book of Acts. Um, we have, I'm trying to think of other passages uh, that would talk about that. Let me just go ahead and take a look here and see if I can find... Sorry about the silence there. Um, but I just wanted to... Okay, so it looks like it's Mark 16, 16, um, which says, if you believe and be baptized, um, uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So I can see, um, I'm not quite sure what your theology is, Doug, and whether or not you believe that a person has to be baptized. I believe they have to be baptized in water and that that's what it's talking about and that we need to be baptized in water and uh, baptized into his death. I don't think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit fulfills what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about us being baptized and people teaching baptism in the book of Acts. So I could talk about that more if you wanna write out a little bit more about that. Um, and maybe I, if I misunderstand you, I'm sorry, if I misunderstood that you don't believe that we are supposed to be baptized by water, then, um, then uh, sorry about that, Doug. All right, so thank you very much uh, for the clarification. All right, and I just made a mistake in misquoting what the passage says. Yeah, so you finished, um, I'm going to bring this in, Doug. So you finished your statement on another question, uh, but on another um, comment, but he was greater than I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And yes, we are baptized um, with the Holy Spirit uh, on the day that we are born again. I do know that there is a passage in the book of Acts that makes a reference to them only being baptized with, with water and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to be brought on them after that. Let me just take a quick moment and see if I can find that passage. Um, okay. Let me see if I can find this. It says that it, it says that I think it's Acts chapter eight. They had been baptized with water only, um, and it makes a reference to that. So I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and move on. Um, both men and women were baptized. As Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized. All right. So yeah, um, you re read Acts chapter eight. That may answer some more questions about baptism and the way that the early church baptized. You can go back and you can look up baptism in the book of Acts, which gives us the way that they practiced baptism. And it does make a reference to they had only been baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
So I do believe we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of family of God. I also believe there's power that comes upon us by the Holy Spirit to do the work that God's called us to do. And I believe that we need to be baptized um, in water uh, as a symbol of being buried with Christ and rising up anew. And that's Romans chapter six. All right, so thank you very much, Doug, for pointing that out. I really do, uh, I really do appreciate when I make a mistake and someone points it out. I know a lot, of, a lot of guys don't, but I do. A lot of pastors don't, but I do. I wanna make sure that I'm understood and that I am right. So we have a question from Annika here. And Annika says, what is the purpose of hell? So the Bible tells us that hell was created for Satan and his angels. That Satan and his angels are eternal and that they will be thrown into the lake of fire. The idea that Hades is gonna oversee the underworld, which has been brought into Christianity, is Greek mythology. It's not Christianity. And, and you may know, Annika, that I talk about it from time to time, that I believe a lot of things that we believe about hell are added in. They aren't what the Bible says about hell. The Bible, and, and I don't believe, I. I don't believe in annihilationism. Uh, that is that people are eventually going to be destroyed in hell. Um, I believe that there are those who are beaten with few stripes and those who are beaten with many because the Bible says that. And I believe that the state of an individual who is in the grave that has been thrown into the lake of fire may not be the, you know, flaying the skin off of someone or burning their eyes out or, or as bad as people try to make it, it doesn't mean it's not horrible, that there's not darkness, that there's not gnashing of teeth, that they're not separated from God for all of eternity, which are all bad. Um, but the purpose of hell was created for them. And then those who want to be apart from God today will be thrown into the lake of fire as well, which is why Jesus talked about it a lot and um, I've got a teaching coming up here sometime in Luke uh, where we're gonna be talking about hell and we're gonna look at a lot of different passages on, on that. So that's the purpose and the purpose for humans is to punish them, you know, to separate them from God. God's not gonna make people be in their presence and so he separates them and it's believed that the soul of man is eternal. The, um, the Bible says, God has put eternity in our hearts. Does that mean that God has just revealed to us that there is eternity? Or, or is it the fact that there's eternity given to each and every single one of us? That we are eternal and it just matters where we're gonna live. And so we wanna live with him and we want the people around us to be able to live with him. But remember, God's going to judge people based on the light that they have. And that's a very important point and um, something has to be an analogy when you talk about hell. So the hell talks about the way to destruction is, is broad and many there are that find it. And it says that the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Is there a little fire? Is there a little worm? Is the destruction literal? And if there's a destruction literal or John 3:16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So is that perish there a, an allegory. So you've got to allegorize something when you're talking about hell and that makes it blurry for us. It makes it not really clear. 
and, and maybe that's done on purpose uh, through the scriptures, uh, that we don't have a real clear snapshot of what the afterlife is going to look like for someone who is separated from God throughout all of eternity in hell. And what the, the one person, on, uh, the person on the earth that is gonna receive the lightest judgment from God that's not gonna be in heaven because they're judged by God, what does that look like for that person? All right, so thanks Annika for your question. I uh, hope that helps. We have, I'm just gonna take a look for another question here. Um, John P uh, has a question. Good to see you, John. Good to have you guys here. Uh, John says, hi pastor, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I did, thank you, was able to hang out with family and uh, the day after my other son coming down and I'm hanging out with them yesterday. I ran into a few people over at Pinnacle Peak and uh, I guess it's uh, Dust Town or whatever it is. Um, we went and, and hung out over there last night with family. It was good. It was a lot of fun. So Ezekiel 37 and 38 is the U.S. in this war. Um, thanks, John. I appreciate that. Um, so in that same passage, so this is the war of Gog and Magog. And I think we're seeing that thing unfold today. I think that Syria, the war in Syria, and the destruction of Damascus is right around the corner. I think that the Gog and Magog war that God's gonna put a hook in and bring them down. I think that Israel even today is ready to go to war against Iran for because of nuclear weapons and that Iran wants to destroy Israel. And I think that, those, that that may happen very soon. We're living in incredibly precarious times and that might bring down Russia and Turkey and Libya um, and Kush, which is the Sudan, um, all of this, um, this cooperation of nations that comes against Israel. Now it says that the young lions say, what are you doing? So it's believed by some, and I think that this could be possible that we are the young lions, that the lion was England. We are the young lions and the United States. And that we say to the to this coalition of nations coming against Israel in Ezekiel 37 and 38, what are you doing? But we don't have any ability to be able to come and stop them from attacking Israel. Or we, we don't take our ability and do it, probably because we abandon them. And if that's the case, that could be us. So if we're not standing and going saying what's going on, um, I don't see any nation in there that I would identify as being the USA. And I haven't heard anybody do that doesn't mean that someone doesn't do it. They might do it, but I haven't heard anybody that, that has done that. I believe that, well, everything in the world is, is being brought now, right now, to the place where this is ready to happen. Israel's a nation again. You couldn't even have every nation in the world coming against Israel before 1948. And then you had them win that war. And then they had another war in 67, another war in 73. And they were able to win all three of those wars. So you wouldn't even have the stage set today had in these last days, God not brought Israel back into the land, brought the Jew back into Israel um, and, and uh, where Gentiles are no longer trampling, at least to, for the most part, Jerusalem underfoot. So yes, John, um, I, I think that we're close to that but I don't think the U.S. is involved in Ezekiel 37 and 38 in that war, in that coalition. Uh, could be wrong, right? Maybe there's something I'm missing when I'm, when I'm studying that, but it could be wrong. 
All right, so thank you very much, John. I appreciate your question and I appreciate you. Uh, so, um, we have another question here from Keeping It Real. Uh, so, Keeping It Real says, good to see you, by the way. Thank you for being involved in our Q&A. Jesus said, he prepared a place for us and he's coming to get us forever to be with him. Does this mean the church is living in heaven during the millennium and only trib survivors on earth? Um, so this is a, a question that we had in, I said that on the millennial question, there was a lot of them broken up. Who occupies the millennium was one of them. Um, and so the new heavens and the new earth haven't been created yet. The new Jerusalem hasn't come down during the millennium. So we don't have that permanent home that we're going to have. Um, I'm going to have to give you, and I don't know, I don't, I, th I think we rule and reign during that time. We may be ruling and reigning here on earth. I think there's some references to that, to ruling and reigning on earth. Uh, so I, th but, but as far as exactly, um, whether or not we're in heaven or only in heaven or only on earth, remember we have a glorified body during the millennium. We're ruling and reigning with Christ during the millennium. So I assume we're going back and forth between the two. And I would think that we're not bound to just one place like heaven or like earth. I think we're able to go between both of them as Jesus was able uh, to go between both of them. Remember, Jesus came and stood before Paul in the book of Corinthians. And so Jesus was able to go from before both of them. And I think that we're able uh, to do the same thing as well. All right. Uh, so hopefully that's helpful. Um, and... Um, Looks like we have another question here from Nelson. And uh, Nelson wrote out this question. I have this question also as one of our first questions. Um, Nelson says, what can I do to have better intimacy and fellowship with God? And I really, I really appreciate you, Nelson. And I appreciate this question because we're supposed to have a deep love for him. Remember the church at Ephesus had left their first love. And that's, I think, the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. And you could go and read that and see what he told them to do. They were, they tested false prophets. They stayed true to the word of God. They were stuck on doing what God had told them to do and how they were supposed to live. But God had this against them that they left their first love. So their intimacy with God had kind of fled away. And so God said, remember from where you've fallen. Return and do the first works and repent. So those three R's, remember, return, and repent. Remember the love that you had for Christ in the beginning. Be committed to tell him, Lord, I don't know that I'm that close to you now. I really would like to be closer. I want to be close with you. The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now we know that verse, but the rest of the verse says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you're double-minded. So that which could keep you from drawing close to God and being close to God would be that our hands aren't cleansed from sin. God is righteous and in him there's no shifting of shadows. And so when there's unrighteousness in us, harbored sin in our lives, then we can find ourselves at a distance from him. And the first thing that we wanna do is cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Make sure that things are right between us and God as we have that heart to want to live for him. And then we draw near to him. Uh, as long as I feel that I don't have a closeness to Christ, then I'm going to ask him 
that there would be closeness, that I would have closeness and that I would walk close to him as long as I feel like I don't have it. So that would be my encouragement to you. And then to draw close to him. Do the things God told you, told you to do. Don't forsake the fellowship of yourself together. Um, love Jesus. Be willing to share with him. Be filled with the spirit. Walk in the spirit and you won't, del- uh, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Just delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Abide in Christ and let his word abide in you so you can ask whatever you desire and it will be given unto you. So I think all of those things put together, Nelson, can bring you to the place where you find yourself close with Jesus. Just don't be satisfied with being at a distance from him and not being deeply in love with him. May God increase your love and may God increase our love as well as we are committed uh, to follow in after him. I I hope that gives you a place to start, uh, Nelson, uh, so that you can be closer to him. All right. Thank you very much. And I I will answer this again. I'm going to prepare uh, at the beginning of a study to talk about how to get closer to God and answer this question. I've already got it planned. It's planned out for a future Q&A. So I'll answer that question more in depth here in a little while. So we have a question from uh, Kimberly. Uh, Good to see you again, Kimberly. Kimberly says, question, do you believe the same way uh, as John MacArthur? He believes in Calvinism. No. I do not believe the same way as, as uh, John MacArthur believes uh, when it comes to Calvinism. Uh, I, Calvinism teaches, and th- these are the things I disagree with Calvinism on, limited atonement, that Jesus didn't die on the cross for everybody, that he only died for the elect, and the elect have been chosen by God just because God chose them. He didn't use his foreknowledge to choose them. Why God would set aside his foreknowledge, no one's ever been able to tell me when I'm, when I'm talking to them sufficiently, but they believe that God set aside his foreknowledge. He has foreknowledge, but he set it aside. And then he chose people however he chose them. I like to use the word random, but I don't, I know Calvinists don't like that word. I'm trying to be fair to them is what they believe. And um, so they believe that there's some people who are, they're walking around lost and they are not, they're saved and they're going to be saved and they can't be lost. They also believe in irresistible, that's irresistible grace, limited atonement, is that there are some who can't be saved. So that when I'm preaching to a, to a room full of people and I'm giving them a chance to come to Christ, there are some that absolutely cannot be saved. They just can't do it because God's chosen them to be a vessel of dishonor instead of a vessel of honor. When in reality, God chose those who are a vessel of honor, those who believe in him, Romans chapter 10, and vessels of dishonor, those who do not believe in him. I also don't believe in total depravity the way they do. I believe in total depravity. I believe that man's totally depraved. I believe we can't save ourselves. God's got to be the one that begins it. He draws us and we respond. Um, I don't have in me what it takes to be saved. And so God's got to do that work inside of me. But I do believe God has given me what I need to respond to that. To say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. There's, there's nothing noble about asking God to forgive you other than maybe humility, the humility that it takes to be able to do that. And so, um, no, I don't believe as John MacArthur believes. I think John MacArthur is a good teacher. I think he's a good Bible student. Um, when it comes to areas where that he believes and he finds passages that speak against that, 
He's really good at kind of brushing them under and not really dealing with them. He deals with other passages on the truth the proper way, and then he'll kind of, I, and from my perspective, from my opinion, um, he doesn't deal with passages on believing the same way, on soteriology, which is the theology of salvation the very same way. I believe that God provides salvation for everyone and that people can receive that salvation. The closest I get to Calvinism is in the perseverance of the saints, the once saved, always saved issue. Uh, I believe that it's very hard for a person, I, I've always believed it's very hard for a person to lose their salvation. Jesus will leave the 99 and go after the one. And I believe that someone who is genuinely saved will be saved. And that if they're not genuinely saved, then they'll leave in the end. Um, but no, I, I'm not an Arminianist and I'm not a Calvinist. And I know the Calvinists will say I have to be an Arminianist. Arminianists will say I have to be a Calvinist, but I don't believe in either one of them. Um, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. And I don't have to believe what Calvinism believes. I don't have to believe what um, Arminians developed and Calvinists developed as a response to our Arminianism. I don't have to believe those. I'm a Christian. I'm, I follow Christ. And um, so do you. And, and so do they. I don't want to get into these camps that are out there. I don't like them. Um, all right. So thank you very much. Uh, it's 4.01. So I'm going to go ahead and say that we are done. Uh, we have a few more questions that are here. I'll take a look at them. Uh, Daniel will send these to me. I see there's um, a few of them. Uh, I appreciate that. I'll go ahead and put them in as questions for uh, future Q&As. All right. So the Lord bless you. Stay close to Jesus. May your love for him deepen. May God do his work inside of you uh, as you surrender yourself to him wholeheartedly. Uh, we have a service in a couple hours, six o'clock. I'd like to invite you out to it. We're talking about the lost sheep. Jesus leaving the 99 and going after the one and the lost coin and how God's desire is to go after those who walk away. And we're going to be talking about apostasy and is apostasy possible? The great falling away at the end of the age, um, which I believe that we are in a part of that now. All right. And, um, but it is very good to see you guys. I hope you have a great day. Stay close to Jesus. Love him. Walk in the peace of God. May God fill you with the Holy Spirit and may you be used by him to shine like light and to be effective salt in the midst of this world. So I'm signing off. God bless you.